Good morning, this is Captain Ken Young. This is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of sitting down and speaking with Captain Ken Young, co-chair of the Law Enforcement Task Force with My Brother's Keepers Alliance. Captain Young, welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I am so honored to have you on the show today because of your work in our community, your long history of first. Uh, you are a history maker and you are still making history today. And I think our audience is really going to be edified by the amazing work that you are doing in our schools, in our community, and in our world today. So thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me, man. I'm excited about the conversation. Yeah, so my first question, it's the hardest of the podcast. I ask every guest, and I promise you there is no wrong answer, but it's simply this. How do you define compassion? Well, I'm looking at it as, you know, as taking a not a sympathetic, but a heartfelt look at others uh, as we do a service for others, um, taking ourselves, setting ourselves outside of the equation and looking at, you know, with the gifts that I have, how can I service you? How can I make things better for you? That's a real basic look at it. It's a very generic look, but it's a heartfelt look. Yeah, I think that's a, a brilliant way to frame it. And I, I really appreciate your insight on that broad huge topic, which is compassion. So we have you on the show today to talk about My Brother's Keeper Alliance. And that's an initiative actually started by our former president, President Barack Obama. So, it, I mean, it's kind of a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Uh, started back in 2014. Uh, it was introduced uh, across the country. Las Vegas took a look at it. Uh, we weren't really ready for it at that time. We took another look at 2017 and things have just skyrocketed from there. We've done some wonderful things over the last several years. And what is your role within the organization? I'm one of the co-chairs for the Law Enforcement Task Force. Okay, awesome. So that means you, you play a hand in, in a lot of how this organization or alliance is, is operating within our city. Yes, as I tell young people, I'm at the table. Uh, so when a lot of the conversations are being had about how we're going to move forward and dealing with some of the issues that plague us as a community, I'm at the table and I'm, I'm involved in those conversations. Yeah. And we definitely have a lot of challenges here in Las Vegas, being the fifth largest school district in the nation. And right now, of course, with COVID having impacted us in the way it has, there are certainly a lot of issues to address. What does My Brother's Keeper Alliance focus in on primarily? Well, one of the, one of the things specifically for schools, um, about two years ago, uh, I'm sorry, three years ago, at the end of one of our conferences, you know, we came across a wonderful idea uh, it's now called the School Justice Partnership. Um, often in our careers, you know, as law enforcement, as adults, as the site administrators, teachers, we go, I wonder, I wish I could have helped that kid or I wish that we didn't have to punish them to this extent because we didn't have any other options. The School Justice Partnership, what it did was it allowed us to look at layers of ways of correcting the kid, not so much just discipline. A lot of times these kids, they didn't need discipline they needed some new direction. 
So this allows now that kids can be handled from sometimes just the lowest, whether I'm just talking to them, giving them counseling, it's not always taking them before the magistrate, before taking them to jail automatically. So for law enforcement, it gave us some extra tools. Yeah. Now, I want this conversation to center around the progress that is being made. I hear so often that nothing has changed. It's just like the 1960s and, you know, nothing's getting better, but a lot of things are getting better. So that's where I want to focus in on. But before we get there, we need to set a baseline and, and create kind of a context for why this organization even exists. So could you share with us some of the challenges in the school system today, particularly around inequity among students of color? Yeah, I'll kind of look at uh, as it relates to law enforcement and it's happening across the country, not just here. You look at the disproportionality of our young men of color, black and brown kids that are placed in our juvenile detention centers, a lot of times for what we consider low level crimes. Uh, a kid is acting out in school, uh, a kid has a pushing match and often they end up in our juvenile system. So we started looking at the numbers and there was definitely an imbalance as it related to, you know, kids of color uh, being taken into our facilities, especially our young men. So one of the things that the president looked at globally was that how do we correct that? How do we write that ship? You know, how do we change the culture, not of just kids, but also of law enforcement, school administrators, community leaders? How do we change the culture that people are helping these kids versus always wanting to punish them? Now, before we get into the meat of our conversation, I want to hear a bit more about you, Kenya. So you are the one that has blazed the trail in so many different arenas. You are not just a law enforcement officer. You are a veteran. You are a performer. You are a pastor's kid. Like you are just so multifaceted. Just to share a little bit about you and some of the highlights. Well, I'm originally from Oakland, California. I uh, came to Las Vegas in 1982 as a member of the U.S. Air Force. Um, Las Vegas was really not on my radar. Um, and when I got here, I was like, it's definitely too hot for me to be here. Uh, so I was coming from a different community. Uh, Las Vegas was initially a challenge for me as it relates to the progression and the pro progressiveness of this community. It's grown on me over the last almost 40 years. Uh, I, after nine years in the Air Force, I became a member of the Clark County School District Police Department. And over the years, I've had an opportunity to move up through the ranks. I've been first in a lot of stuff. Currently, I, I still believe, I think I'm still the ranking African-American in the state of Nevada as it relates to uh, school policing, our officers that are involved in the school system. So still a first in that. I was the first public information officer. I've worked in gangs, I've worked in the training unit. So I've had a well-rounded career. Um, as well, I'm a performer, I'm a, I'm a vocalist. I've had an opportunity to travel the world uh, as a musician. I've worked with such notables as Gladys Knight, uh, David Cassidy, Tommy Toon, uh, Gospel Legends, the, Ed, uh, the Hawkins, Daryl Coley. And so it's it just, you know, I've had some wonderful opportunities. I'm a father of three, grandfather of five. Girls. <laughs> five girls. Five girls, five granddaughters, man. Wow. So you you named some folks. We, we can't just skate by this. So Gladys Knight is perhaps my grandmother's favorite artist of all time. She's also one of my favorites. And 
timeless, classic, just one of the best to ever do it. So you've worked with her. That's amazing. Daryl Coley is the voice of gospel. I mean, no one like him. No one was like him before. No one will be like him. He has set the the bar at an unreachable level. Hawkins, I mean, legendary. So I just just want the audience that may not be familiar with some of these names to know, like, these are amazing individuals. Yeah, these were my influences. Uh, Daryl Coley and, uh, and another gentleman Derek Hughes were responsible responsible for me singing. I was a drummer and uh, they heard me clowning around. It was like, don't ever sit back on the drums again. Come to the mic. You know, so it's a long story there, but it's a fun, it's a fun story. And here I am. Well, hey, I want to ask this. How does music impact the way you approach law enforcement? Well, it's about timing. Um, and that's probably one of the best analogies I can give. It's timing. So as a musician, you have to understand how the music ebbs and flows. Um, same thing when in law enforcement. There's times when I have to be aggressive. There's times when I have to be compassionate. There's times when I have to be a counselor, a father, and an enforcer. So it's understanding you know, what you're, what's in front of you and then applying those skill sets in a timely manner. I want to take it way back to when you were little, Ken, and your first encounter with law enforcement? Um, So growing up in Oakland, California, um, a lot of people don't know that I have a deep root with the Black Panthers. Um, We were living around the corner from their headquarters, and then my cousin was married to Dr. Huey P. Newton. So we were up front and close and saw the initial start of and some of the things that they were doing in our community. So initially, um, law enforcement were not our friend, you know, based on some of the things that we saw and how they were treating some of our elders. Um, 1972, 73-ish, I had an encounter with an officer, Brown, um, who I was doing something that I shouldn't have done. And instead of him taking the enforcement route, he said, there's something about you. I'm not really sure what it is but I want to go meet your parents. So he took me home. And from that point on, I had a new respect for law enforcement because it could have been worse. As my pastor would say, it could have gone another way. Um, But he took the opportunity to get to know me there for a second and talk to me and talk me through better decision-making. That's powerful. He took the time to see beyond the activity you were engaged in and to see the person that you, you could become. Yes. Has that shaped the way you approach your work with kids today? Definitely, definitely. Um, one, of, one of the wonderful things about being a part of the faith-based community, the areas that I worked, a lot of their kids, I knew their parents, I knew their grandparents, I knew their pastors, I knew their youth leaders at their churches. So often, you know, I could come in and recognize a kid or recognize the family relation and be able to talk a kid down or talk a kid through you know, a lot of situations where some of my counterparts who weren't embedded in certain communities would not have had that opportunity. So in our community, there are people doing incredible work, advancing the cause of all people. And there's also a mistrust of law enforcement, of police officers, of cops. Have you ever dealt with mistrust on that level? And if so, how? Definitely, uh, that's very consistent because of the career field. Um, automatically, people look at you and go, eh, he's a law enforcement officer, so you know he's sold out to the system. 
Uh, he may not understand, you know, what it is to be a black man anymore, you know, and that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, every day that I get up, no matter what uniform or what clothes that I have on, first of all, I'm still a black man. So I definitely understand, you know, historically, you know, what has happened. I understand historically the mistrust of law enforcement. So part of my goal is to try and help to change that thought, to change that process that at some point somebody's going to say that he's a cop, but he's fair. He's a cop. He made those around him, you know, act in a fair manner as best that he could. But do you think that there's an impact uh, almost reverse racism. I don't love that term, but I think it gives us a context for for the question. Do you think that there's a a reverse racism impact on learning outcomes or just just community engagement in general? Yes, um, one of the things that I often you know advocate is the need for cultural competency tra- competency training within our school systems and in our community leaders that you know, learning, you know, how these cultures, you know, how, you know, what are some of the norms in a particular culture? Um, you, you, some people call it a stereotype, but if you look at it, you know, it's a factual thing that in certain cultures, certain things are accepted, certain things are norms. So within that, do you think that there is a element of genetic cultural differences or is it purely environmental? And here's what I mean. Is there a way to drill down on what truly impacts the culture of the individual versus this kind of blanket idea that because the skin tone is one thing, that person operates in a certain way. You know, I guess the question we'd asked initially was, is, you know, are you the norm or an exception? So in most cases, your, your experience would be an exception. Mine was a little similar as being a preacher's kid. We weren't supposed to do or say or, you know, use certain languages, you know, so my brothers and sisters and I, you know, we had to learn how to curse, um, which is a whole story within itself. Um, We had to learn or assimilate into certain things that other kids could do. But the expectation was that because I was a preacher's kid, that I had to act a certain way. Often because a kid lives in a certain zip code, um, he lives, you know, in a certain area, geographical area, the expectation is he or she is going to act a certain way. And that's because as a community, um, globally, we've been conditioned to start to look at the person's environment and not them as an individual. Hmm. And how has COVID impacted that? Because I know you can't be physically present. I know we're going back soon, but since you're not physically present, how has that changed the way you do your job? Well, we switched over to the humanitarian uh, efforts. You know, that's what our mission became over the last year. So we had an opportunity to interact with families and that were reaching out for help. Um, kids that were reaching out for edu- educational resources. So, you know, officers, you know, now had an opportunity to see kids with their families, you know, as they were coming to the schools to get certain assistances, assistances that were available. So as we're going back into school now, we have to refocus and we're looking at, you know, what's our new approach now to, we're having this conversation now of reimagining policing in our schools. We're having that conversation. You know, what does it look like going forward? Um, We have other resources that are available now. We have the Harbor, we have the School Justice Partnership. Uh, So we're working more with site administrators and saying, hey, let's figure out how to keep these kids in school. Let's figure out how to keep 
little Will Will from making these bad decisions so that he can become a productive citizen. That's amazing. I'm glad to hear that. And, and reimagine is one of my favorite words right now, because with everything changing, like we're, we have to, we don't have a choice. We have to reimagine from A to Z what we're doing. So that's exciting to hear. I want to return just really quickly to the subject of racism, and then we'll, we'll move forward with my Brothers Keepers Alliance. And so with, with your personal experience, have you experienced anything along the lines of internalized racism or I could ask it a different way. How has internalized racism impacted the way you came up in law enforcement and the way that you operate now with this new mentorship program? Well, uh, you know, I definitely have experienced it. Uh, we're, you know, internally and externally, you know, coming up, you know, I came into at that time what they called the good old boy system. So, you know, there was an expectation that I had to work harder, you know, to promote. Um, I had to ensure that my work was that much better than my counterparts. Um, when we were going out to provide services, often there was an expectation that uh, I don't want that particular officer to talk to my kid. Um, I don't want that particular officer to put his hands on me. You know, um, where I come from, we don't allow people like him to touch us or to talk to us. So we've dealt with that kind of stuff, you know, starting back in 91, it was still prevalent here in Nevada. Um, internally, it's like there was only a certain group of officers that were going to promote. There was only a certain group of officers that could work certain areas of town. So I've had to deal with those types of things. How does that feel? And I know that that's kind of like a fluffy question on the surface, but but I want to go deeper than that. How how does that feel when you you know that that is occurring or has occurred? You have two choices. You can get angry or you can push forward and succeed and prove them wrong. And I chose the latter. There are times when I was angry, um, but that anger, you know, my as my parents would say, you know, let that fuel, you know, your forward progress. Yeah. What makes you angry today? Um, watching people now, you know, some of my young off younger officers, um, younger counterparts, when they refuse to see where we're headed as the world is changing. You know, law enforcement used to be only about hook, book, um, let's get some stats. Now the stats are changing. You know, it's like, how many kids can we help? And so often it's, you know, it's really discouraging to see when officers don't understand that this is where we're headed, you know, let's look at our stats of how many kids are gonna come back 10 years later and say, hey, thanks for not arresting me. You know, I am now the CEO of X, Y, and Z. I am now a proud business owner of this, or I'm a father, I have kids. You know, that, that to me is like some of the busy, biggest successes that we have. It's always heartfelt to me when I see these kids in the mall, they're adults now, they're business owners, they're parents, you know, and they're doing some great things. Yeah, I'm at that in-between age now where my former teachers are seeing what I've become. And now I'm also seeing what those I mentored are becoming. So it's, it's really interesting because you never know the potential of an individual. And so I try to look at each person as being completely unlimited. And while I may peg them as this or that, if they're interested in something completely different, I do try to encourage that so they can become what their heart desires. And it, it really is so rewarding to see 
what happens when when you just give someone a chance. Yeah, definitely, definitely, man. Like I said, I'm a recipient of that. You know, somebody took an opportunity to see beyond where I was. It's like this kid could actually do some things. You know, he could go on to do some great things in life. And so, you know, I try and pass that on to officers. You know, hey, take an opportunity. Take a complete look as much as you can, you know, with this kid. And is your next your next move is going to impact them for years and years. Make the best decision for the kid. So, Captain, how do you define success? That's personal. It's almost like a DNA, you know, your own DNA. Um, I, I try and tell my kids, you know, set some goals, you know, get to that particular point. Once you've gotten there, then, you know, what's your next move? Um, success is not defined by money. It's not the, the, defined by possessions. You know, basically it's a state of mind. It's a state of being, you know, do you feel comfortable in your skin based on the things that you're doing, the decisions that you're making on a daily basis? Um, is your presence making a difference by every environment that you touch? For me, that's success. I like that. So I, what I did not hear was a certain dollar value in the bank. No, so I know some very rich, wealthy folks that are miserable. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, the money didn't make them happy. It made them miserable. You know, I would like to have the money, you know, but uh, that's not success for me. Mm -hmm. What is the thing you value most? Right now it's respect. You know, for me, me having respect for the individuals that I come in contact with, um, people having integrity in their walk, their talk, you know, those things are huge for me. That's, that's currency for me, you know, that we respect each other and that we retreat each other with respect. Yeah, respect is a big deal. And I think respect is also kind of the other side of the coin of trust. And so trust, I think, is huge, particularly in the, the work that you do. And it sounds like from what you've shared so far, you've had some experiences that have helped to shape your ability to get others to trust you. And of course, with the spaces that you've been in, in the various capacities, you've learned a thing or two about respect, which I'm so grateful you're able to now impart that into others in our community. Turning our attention to our Brothers Keeper Alliance, what would you say inspires you most about this program and the work that you've done so far? Well, when you look at like communities um, across the country, uh, we have a call each week where we talk to other communities across the country and we get a chance to hear the highlights of you know, some of the things that they're doing. You know, Over the last several years, I've met some wonderful people that look like me that are doing some great things in communities like I live in. Uh, I guess one of the highlights, we had an opportunity to go to my city, Oakland, California, for a my brother's keeper conference and we took a group of students and the aha moment was when they got there and they saw some brothers that were slightly older than them younger than me that were ceos um they were this uh they were in charge and they were doing some great things they were doing some things that were global they were doing some things that were impacting their communities locally some of them were doing well financially um, and seeing these young men go, oh man, that could be me. He looks just like me. Uh, so that was a great aha moment. Um, when we start looking at what's going on in our law enforcement community, communities here locally, um, us making some changes, getting people to sit down at the table to talk about 
some of the, the biases and the racism that's going on, not just in law enforcement, but across the communities. So those are some of the highlights for me, you know, when I look at it and what we're able to do within the schools, you know, to change the ideology that not all kids are, if we're hammers, not all kids are nails. So, you know, what, how do we change that? I'm taking that from my buddy, Jack Martin. How do we change, you know, that narrative that we can actually help these kids that, you know, they're going to be future great citizens. What I just heard in that is sometimes we have to be able to see a thing in order to aspire to it or to know it's possible for us. So that's that's one of the reasons I, of course, wanted to dive into the other facets of, of who you are, because, you know, I, I just don't picture, you know, the singing police officer. It's not it's not a common thing. So Google me, man. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's absolutely awesome. When you're in those moments when you are working with the students and you know you're making a connection, what does that do for you as an individual? It, it really reassures me that there's some hope. Um, you know, when I get those moments and I see the aha moments within the kids' eyes, then I push and I challenge. Um, there's been some times, you know, when I first started as a law enforcement officer, hey, I got to get this stat. You know, if I come in contact with a kid, yeah, he's going to jail. Um, so, you know, so now changing that, that methodology when I approach kids, um, looking that, you know, if I make a promise to a kid, hey, I'm coming to see you in two weeks and your grades and talk to you about what's going on in your life, I make sure that I keep that promise. And when the kids are making those progressions, when they're progressing, you know, the one that I reaward them verbally. Um, and then I also try to reward them with opportunities and connections. Like you, many of the kids, when I tell them I'm into music, you know, and I've done X, Y, and Z, and I've worked with these artists and I've met these artists. Um, when I tell kids, uh, I wrote on Brandy's first album and they go, what, you? Yeah, yeah, I did that. And I'm still a law enforcement officer and I've traveled the world. I've been through the United States about nine times. I've been throughout the world. I've been everywhere I wanted to go on someone else's dime, being paid to be there and enjoying the environment. Wow. And you, you just I, I got to take a second to, to absorb that. Brandy's one of my favorite artists as well. And so to know that you've written for her, you're like, we're going to have to have a, a second conversation about this music thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely, man. I've, uh, I've had some wonderful opportunities. Music has been an, an open door for me and a, an opportunity for me to get out and do some wonderful things. And like I said, when kids see the uniform, they don't make that connection. And so sometimes I get a chance to go to schools and visit music classes and, you know, impart upon them you know, the importance of learning the basic theory. You know, I tell them some of my horror stories because I had a great ear. I was a cheater. You know, I didn't learn all that I needed to learn. I could play by ear. And that hampered me later on when I had some big opportunities, but I didn't have the skill level needed to stay in the opportunity. That's an important lesson. And I'm, I'm almost the opposite. I had to learn the theory because I couldn't play anything by ear. Um, but what I heard you saying in, in that is that you are really allowing young people to see people. And what I mean by that is a lot of times we label people, oh, that's a police officer. Oh, that's a doctor. That's a judge. That's a teacher. And we forget that behind that job title is a human being, a person just like I am. And so it seems like you're you're helping to bridge that gap in, in awareness for our students. Do you see that happening? 
Yeah, definitely. You know, and, and I'll keep it 100. There are some times when I can be that other guy. I can be that guy. I can be that jerk. You know, there are those times. Um, but, you know, like I said, I really try to make sure that that's not always my first approach. That's my final approach. You know, if I've used all the tricks in my bag, you know, all of my different approaches to a kid and they still refuse, you know, and they're still going to, you know, say that I'm going to do what I plan to do, whether it be physical, uh, whether it be harming themselves, then I have to become that other guy. So I want to make sure that I'm not putting up a fantasy that, no, I'd never do that. No, um, there are multifacets, you know, to who I am as an officer. I try and stay on the side of let's communicate. Let me show you a better representative of law enforcement. In those times when you have to, to get more aggressive and, and take a different approach, when you circle back to those individuals, what do you hear from them? Um, 90%, 95% of the kids are the adults that I've ever had to deal with. You know, when I see them again, it's not a bad encounter. Now, there are some that, you know, when I see them, it's not good. You know, I've had some of those as well. Yeah. And how does that weigh on you as an individual? Well, it keeps me on my toes, you know, especially if I'm out and about with my family. Uh, so it keeps me on my toes. So that's one of the things that I always said that I want to be able to move around in my community without fear. So because of my approach, I've been able to do that. Mm. I, I like the way you phrase that move about in my community without fear. And, and there are so many layers that, that I've just kind of read into that. Yeah. But one of the things that I, I really try to advocate for is big picture solutions. So for example, when we deal with the subject of homelessness um, recently, our, I think it's the episode before yours or maybe a couple before, but we talked about anti-homeless architecture and the guest said, why are we fighting to get people to be able to sleep on benches instead of fighting to get them housed? And so that's kind of what I'm, I'm hearing in, in your, your statement there is, you know, we, we have issues, we have problems that are happening, but let's make sure that the main thing stays the main thing. Definitely. You know, and we have, as it relates to homelessness, we have so many kids that are dealing with that, whether their parents are living in uh, a weekly, whether they are living in their cars. Um, you never know, you know, what a kid is dealing with, you know, until you actually sit down and talk with them. You know, I admire the kids that can overcome that on a daily basis and come in and let that education be their fuel for their future. These are the kids a lot of times that are coming in, they're, they're studying, they're working hard. It says, you know, look, I'm going to go to school. So at some point I can come back and get my family out of this situation, whether it be through sports academics, whatever, that's fueling them for their future. Yeah. What is your vision for the future? For what is your 1,000 year vision? Oh my God, my 1,000 year vision. Uh, you know, that I can look back and say that, you know, I was able to help or to help re help some kids or some young people to reevaluate their current position and put them on a path to future success um, that, you know, Ken Young was able to help, you know, some kids, you know, he gave opportunities, you know, one of the things, you know, coming up, you know, like say playing around with that Daryl Coley was, you know, he said, Hey, when you get the opportunity, you make sure that you help someone else. Um, same thing with some individuals here locally, like, Hey, when you get the opportunity, you pass on the gift that I just gave you. 
So I want to be able to look back and hope that those opportunities, those gifts are helping somebody a thousand years later, you know, a hundred years later, heck, one or two days later. That's beautiful. So with the Alliance, there are three components. You, of course, are part of the law enforcement. You're the co-chair there. But there's also community engagement. And is it educational equity? Is that the yes. third branch? Yes. What are some of the successes that are happening? What progress have you seen in all arenas so far? Well, we work collaboratively. Um, so when we look at the school, school justice partnership, that was a collaborative effort from all entities. You know, okay, all, so let's let's what is that? Because that that sounds fascinating, but I don't know what it is. So. The school justice partnership uh, was a an agreement with law enforcement and educators that you know jail was not the only solution for kids. The court system was not the only solution. So let's look at. Um, I'll use you. Will keeps having these violent outbursts in class. Um, by the letter of the law, yeah, we could give him a citation. We could actually take him to jail. What else can we do? With him? So we're looking at the multi-tiered, you know, approach where let's sit down and talk with them. Is there counseling available? Do we need to refer Will to the harbor where they have some other uh, resources available through family counseling, counseling um, through assistance with, you know, getting him better housing? Those are opportunities that, you know, we can look at. So the school justice partnership says, you know, instead of automatically taking these kids into the judicial system, let's look at whether what other opportunities are available. So we had we came up with something that's called the Focus Acts, or we call low-level crimes. You know, a kid has an outburst. Uh, we have a pushing match. Um, a kid is, is uh, trying to think of some of the other ones. Um, just real basic, you know, low-level stuff that, you know, a lot of times an officer is on his way to juvenile going, man, this is a waste of time. You know, so there's a partnership between the school district and law enforcement and the judicial system that says, you know, hey, you guys take a look at the other opportunities, you know, also through the restorative process, as you mentioned. Earlier. Got you. Thank you for sharing that, because I I didn't know quite what it meant. I, I figured it was something along those lines, but thank you for, for making that more clear. And is this something that's happening district-wide, or is it just being piloted in certain schools? No, it's district-wide. Um, it's, it came around in uh, 2018 is when we started that process, um, and through a series of sit-down meetings, um, talking with the administrators, talking with the local ju judicial system, uh, we were able to get that into the school system. So across the board now, that's something that's being employed. And we've seen a reduction in numbers in our student, uh, students being taken into the juvenile system, somewhere around between 28 and 30%, you know, wow. down as it relates to our kids of color, especially. Mm -hmm. And with that, what is the difference as far as the rate uh, of justice-involved youth for uh, students of color versus uh, their white counterparts? I don't have those numbers in, in front of me, but I can tell you there was a very large imbalance. Um, I'll be honest and tell you that it was, you know, alarming when you looked at the numbers that, you know, hey, wait a minute, that, you know, why are so many African-American, I mean, and so many Hispanic kids been taken in where their white counterparts are not. So we started looking at that from a law enforcement side, you know, what are we doing as, because we're a part of this process. We started asking the educators, how are the kids being referred to us? And so, you know, we started, you know, pushing on, you know, one cultural competency, um, getting, you know, implicit bias training, uh, talking about first contact training, just because a kid does this, do you automatically refer them to the Dean's office? 
or to the principal's office, whoever's handling discipline. I think that that makes a huge difference when they know that opportunity exists. Sometimes it's easy to feel hopeless. Uh, you know, I'm an adult. I've been an adult a little while. We won't say how many years, but I've been an adult for a while. And it's easy for me to feel hopeless. So going back to my younger self, if I didn't have opportunities in front of me or something to live for or work towards, that, that takes away hope. And for me, hope is really the energy of our future. We don't have that then what do we really have? So I just want to take this moment to say thank you for, for providing a space of hope for our students. Thank you, man, for the opportunity to kind of talk about some of these things. You know, it's just really alarming when you see some of the things that we take for granted. Like you get a kid that lives in North Las Vegas that has never been to Henderson. Um, you know, a kid that lives in Henderson has never been to the Strip. You know, so these things that we take for granted, you know, that help to shape, you know, who we are, uh, based on the environment, you know, some of these kids have never had those opportunities. So when we pair them up, you know, with a mentor, you know, a mentor is there to help provide and expose them to all these things that are around to help shape, you know, their future. Yeah. And you just, you took me back again. So there are kids in our city that have never actually been to the strip. Correct. Correct. And, and you know, you go, wait a minute, it's 2021. You know, and that's still true in a lot of areas. Wow. <laughs> that, exactly. You know, and that that for me gives some additional context to the need for what you're doing and the value of it. And, and it also uh, provides a, another source of, we'll say, energy. Um, the energy right now is frustration because we have so much available and we know the answers to the challenges we are facing. And sometimes it just doesn't feel like we are implementing the solutions that are right in front of us. Could you share a little bit of your insight on that? Well, you know, here's the encouraging part of that, you know, is that we have people that are in your age group that are stepping forward. You know, you look at people like uh, Minister Stretch, you know, that are doing some wonderful things in the community. Everybody doesn't understand his approach, you know, but I admire the fact that he's willing to get out there when you look at uh, Brother McCurdy, you know, the young McCurdy, as I call him, you know, stepping forward, you know, people like that, people like yourself that are stepping forward gives people like me hope that, you know, somebody along the way has made a difference. Somebody along the way, you know, planted a seed for somebody like you to step forward to help reshape, you know, where we are. And that is encouraging. And I'm, I'm inspired by both of those individuals. We've actually had now uh, County Commissioner McCurdy on when he was Assemblyman McCurdy. So mm -hmm. he's, he's absolutely incredible. I don't know Minister Stretch, but I've seen his work. So we'll have to get him on the podcast too. Definitely. It'd be an interesting conversation for you. Well, in our last few minutes, I just want to dive into some visioning, some reimagining, some ideas for the future. So when you look at what's happening with the Alliance and what's happening with the school system at large and our state and our world at large, what would you say needs to happen to go from equality to equity? And what do you see happening in this moment that is helping to push that forward? One of the big pushes for us is getting our communities more involved, getting them at the table, uh, breaking down some of those barriers of mistrust or you know, the city and county entities, uh, law enforcement that, you know, basically we're only here to come tell you what you need to do versus listening to what you need. 
So that's one of the big barriers, you know, in getting our community leaders to the table. The second portion of that is getting our young people to the table. Um, I, I'm really happy to see what's going on with our NAACP on what's going on over there where they're getting young people involved. Um, while we have also some of our youth uh, empowerment entities within, uh, within my brother's keeper that are doing some things, you know, getting some of the young people to the table, sitting down and not talking to them, but listening to them as to, you know, this is what we deal with on a daily basis. You know, this is what we need. So how do we get them those resources to help them make them successful? How do we make them accountable, you know, to those things, you know, that says, if you're, you're going to get this, how are you going to get there? And how do I make sure that you remain accountable to get to that particular space? You mentioned working with the students in that way. And you sent me back to hearing as a child, you don't know what being sad is. You don't know what hard is. And so when we're dealing with this mental health aspect, because that's really what you're talking about, being heard is, is a huge mental health practice, just being able to, to be listened to. Do you also work with parents and help them to understand that aspect? We try. When we get those opportunities, yes. Um, sitting down with parents and doing parent-focused meetings um, to talk about how to deal with kids is not our main focus right now as law enforcement. Uh, through my brother's keeper, yes, there are those opportunities uh, through other organizations like the Harbor, through NAACP, there are those opportunities. And when we get the opportunity to come in as guests and talk to parents, you know, it's eye-opening, you know. Um, but I think it's in the Parents' Handbook, Chapter 5, Page 4, we have to be able to say that you don't know what it is to be grown. You don't know what it, we went through. <laughs> That's one thing we do as parents. Yeah, uphill both ways That's in right. the snow and the heat the at the snow. same time. <laughs> <laughs> I ate what was before me and then my parents cooked it. I had to eat. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. What do you do to take care of your mental health? What are some of your self-care practices? Um, I'm really a kind of a loner in a sense. Um, I do so many things in the public eye, uh, whether it be performing or serving as a law enforcement officer, that a lot of times, you know, I really, really, really enjoy quiet time. Um, I'm getting back into, you know, my times of sitting down with a good book. Um, I enjoy mysteries, uh, sitting down, doing time with my, you know, with my family. Um, we are television buffs, you know, we enjoy action movies and things like that. So, those are things that I do in my downtime. I'm learning now how to communicate about me to others better. Um, a lot of times, you know, I was one of those internalizers, so I just keep it all in. So I'm learning now how that's really important. You know, my wife is the communicator. Um, you know, so I'm learning now how to communicate better about what's going on with me, in me, and where I'm headed. I think that journey to self-love is a lifelong journey and we're constantly learning who we are. And I feel as though the better I know myself, the better I'm able to begin to know you. So I, I'm really appreciative of you sharing that as an aspect of self-care. Definitely, man. I say, you know, finding out who you are sometimes can be kind of scary, you know, when you get there and you really, really look in the mirror. So I'm learning to appreciate that person. Um, actually I'm still, I'm not grown yet, so <laughs> I'm still learning, I'm still growing.
What can we do as a community to help support My Brother's Keepers Alliance, your work in the school system, law enforcement as a whole? How can we be supportive of you? Get involved, get involved, get involved. And did I mention get involved? Uh, that's the biggest thing. It's easy to sit on the sidelines and go, you know, that's some crap or, you know, that's, you know, I don't have time for that or, you know, they're not really in the community or they're not of the community. They're not from, it's easy to sit back and throw rocks, you know? So we say, Hey, come to the table, let's sit down, you know, give us your perspective from your lens. You know, what are we missing? So we're not above that. That's how we learn. To close us out, I'd like to ask you to finish a few sentences. I'll just give you a few words to start the sentence and you finish it out. What matters most is? Respect. Um, respect across the board in any and all things, you know, respect is the key. What makes life worth living is? Uh, seeing people succeed, you know, seeing uh, the aha moments, you know, living in the aha moments. I reimagine Las Vegas as? Becoming a leading city as it relates to child advocacy, um, assisting our kids getting through the minutiae of uh, becoming uh, teenagers, you know, getting beyond that point, us uh, taking mental health seriously, that we become the leaders, you know, in the country as to how we're dealing with mental health. Um, and then hopefully we come with some solutions for our homelessness problem. Last one. Uh -oh. I'm here because. I'm here because I still have some things to do. Um, the master's not done with me yet. Um, there's still some things for me to accomplish steal some opportunities, you know, for me and then for me to open the door for some others. So I still got some stuff to do. Captain Ken Young, thank you for joining us today as the co-chair of the My Brother's Keepers Alliance, captain for the CCSD, law enforcement, and all of these other amazing things that we have to do a part two, three, four on <laughs> to talk about. It has truly been a pleasure. Please and, and, and stay in touch with us because we do want to support the work and amplify these great things. I think we've just scratched the surface of the progress that is being made. And I know that you're, you're working hard to keep that momentum going. Is there any last thing that you just want to leave with our audience today? Just, man, thankful for the opportunities. Um, you know, like I say, get involved, get involved. You know, like I said, if you want to, you know, come and see what we're doing or be a part of change, get to the table. You know, it is enough for all of us to do. Uh, we don't have it all right, you know, but we have the hearts that we want to make things better. So, you know, come and be a part of what we're doing. Come join us. Come link up with us. Let's go arm in arm, you know, as we walk into the future. And we can leave it there. That's it, man. Coming up on Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Somebody sent me a video of it. And I was, first of all, like, I know that person. and I know the valuable stuff they had in there. And it was just like horrible that they lost their stuff. That was the big thing. We had plans to to build to build more, and I I knew like people would be a little devastated by this. You know, I was down about it, but I know that it's a long road to to get to where we gotta go. 